you are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Greetings, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ursula Rudenberg, from Pacifica Network, filling in temporarily for Anne Levine, the regular host. In the next half hour, we bring you an exploration of how Ukrainian President Zelensky's U.S. visit landed with those back home in Ukraine. To get a sense of this, we hear from Dr. Ivan Gomza, Academic Director of the Public Policy and Governance Program at Kyiv School of Economics. Dr. Gomza researches democratization and governance, and he has written extensively about this war. Actually, at the time of our scheduled interview, there was no electricity in Kyiv. So just as it looked as if we would have to cancel, we were lucky, and the electricity suddenly came on, and we were able to proceed. Here's the interview. Professor Gomza, you're at the University at Kyiv, correct? Yes, Kyiv School of Economics. And you are speaking to us from Kyiv now? Yes, yes. Since we scheduled this interview, events overtook us in a way, and the president came to the United States. How has this trip affected people in Ukraine that you're aware of? Well, that was the very first trip by the president abroad after the full-blown invasion. So it is very symbolic because he actually took a train to get to Poland and then a plane to get to, to cross the ocean. And when I say it is symbolic, it is because a train is the only possible way for any Ukrainian to get abroad nowadays. You know, prior to the invasion, you could take a plane and fly wherever you want. Now you cannot do it. And the fact that even the president cannot fly out from his own country is very symbolic. We saw our president here in Ukraine take chances. Uh, He might be targeted by Russian special forces. And he enhanced that perception by first going to the most dangerous part of the war, right? Uh, You mean Bakhmut? It is true. And by the way, after he left Bakhmut, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, it's a mercenary group fighting for Russia, and actually for the moment of being it one of the most battle-effective units of the Russian force, So Prigozhin, he went to Bakhmut as well and started taunting Zelensky, something like, well, I'm here, do you want to come back and I'll kick your ass? Uh, Mm. Actually, it was a lame performance because, you know, president has already been there and Russians, you didn't react. So now it was like, you know, lofty words. When you say they didn't react, what do you mean? They didn't respond militarily? Yes, exactly. Well, let me remind you that prior to that visit to Bakhmut, Zelensky also visited Kupyansk, the city in Kharkiv region, also occupied by the Russian forces. It still is a site of atrocities. There are several torture chambers, there are mass graves. So Zelensky went there as well. And uh, after he left, because, you know, it was like a swift arrival, visit the place and then he left, they started complaining in the Russian medias, why haven't we targeted him? Because he was in the zone of the artillery reach. So he did it in Kupiansk, then he did it in Bakhmut. Yes, he is like braving the Russian forces. And it is symbolic because, you know, he shows that it is my country, it is my land, and you cannot do anything. And then after that performance, claiming his land and the loyalty of the people, he went to the United States to build transatlantic 
trust and network and maybe even an alliance. Was this trip well received in Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, I cannot say that people are ecstatic, but they're really happy because it is a very powerful symbol and signal that the president, by the way, in a very, let's say, common outfit. So he was not wearing a net tie. He was not wearing some, you know, business suit. He wasn't almost like a fatigue. He's dressed exactly. like a soldier. Yeah, so he pretended mm -hmm. to come just from the battlefield, although he doesn't serve in the army, obviously. So he went there. He had a reception by the U.S. Congress. So yes, in Ukraine, for people here on the ground, it's like a signal that the Ukrainian cause is being supported by the most powerful state on the planet. I think you have heard the parallel which is currently being built that it is like uh, the journey taken by Winston Churchill to the United States to address the Congress to ask for help and received it. A few things about the speech. Oh, first of all, he invoked the image of Christmas without electricity. How are things in Kyiv? Well, it was a quite a difficult week because most of the time we don't have it. The previous outage was for 50 consecutive hours. And just several days ago, it was like three hours per day that we had electricity. Uh, this day, we actually had no electricity at all. The power, it appeared at 1 a.m., it disappeared at 3 a.m., and then I haven't had it until just the very beginning of our conversation. Uh, I'm talking about Kyiv. In Odessa, Lviv, the situation is quite different. People there have schedules, it's four to four, four hours they have power, then it is power cut for quite a precise four hours, and then they have it back again. Kyiv, actually, it is unpredictable. You don't know when the power will go out and when it will reappear. And just, you know, to compound the situation, when you don't have power, the water pumps don't work, or you don't have water. And if you don't have water, it means you cannot flush the toilet, you cannot wash the dishes. On the other hand, I'm not complaining because at least I have gas. So if I want, I can cook something on a gas cooker. In other districts of Kyiv, there is no gas supply because those districts, they were constructed in the late Soviet period. And the new idea was developed at that period that... Well, maybe we don't need gas supply, gas uh, central system in residential apartments. So there, people actually are equipped with electrical cookers. So for them, it is difficult because yeah. everything depends on electricity. What about heat? At my apartment, I have an individual boiler which works on electricity. So no electricity, no heat mm. uh, supply. So yeah, it is called, yeah. So you may, in fact, have a cold and dark Christmas. He's correct. He is correct. Most people who live in central Ukraine, and Kyiv is in central Ukraine, they are bound to have cold and dark Christmas. How are you and other people coping? What What's the secret to being able to cope with this? Personally, like my family, my wife and my child, we have a kid, three years old. So we bought a special huge power bank. It is called uh, EcoFlow. It works like an accumulator. So you plug it in and it collects energy and it is enough for eight hours. So I can plug it in and have some heat at my apartment. Or it lasts enough to hold the fridge for three hours. 
or alternatively, it is enough to have 12 hours of internet, which is very important for <laughs> my mm. professional life. The sound which you hear the most in Kyiv nowadays is the humming of the diesel generators. They're actually everywhere. The cafes, mm. the huge supermarkets, and there are more and more of them. You cannot equip them in your apartment because of the fumes. But it is enough, you know, to have businesses. So that's what actually helps us to cope. And also there are some so-called points of resilience. Those are places especially equipped by the government where you can go and charge your electric devices mm. located in some schools or governmental offices. Sometimes they are in air raid shelters. That the reality is also with us. I mean, air raids are constant and danger of being bombed. So for people to get some power supply, those uh, points of resilience, they are predominantly in more safe places. So you can get online there and you can charge your phone or is that what basically people yes. do there? Yeah, exactly. They charge phones and other devices. For instance, you can take the EcoFlow, the huge power bank I mentioned, and try to <laughs> charge it there. Mm. When President Zelensky was speaking, he said that this war will define whether it will be democracy for Ukrainians and Americans. And I think he alluded to the, uh, the courage of the Ukrainians making this happen. How do you feel about being asked to shoulder this well, as a political scientist, you know, I actually consider this as the war for existence. I mean, I do agree with the president that after the war, actually, one of two regimes will be no more. So either there will be no democratic Ukraine or there will be no more Putinist kleptocratic Russia. When I say will bring, I don't mean that mm. immediately after the war, but in two, three years, there will be very profound, important repercussions for Russia if it loses. Are you kind of saying that in order for this invasion to stop, Russia has to change? Unlike many in Ukraine, I don't claim that a regime change in Russia is necessary. Many people actually claim that either we topple Putin or we are going to have the same situation in a year, in a two, whatever. Uh, it is not my point of view. What I am saying is that actually, one way or another, when Putin loses, his regime will be changed. I heard a quote from one of the Russian officials responding to Zelensky's visit, something to the effect of, well, what happened was that a little man in a rumpled green shirt went across the ocean, something like that, was dismissive. I would be curious of your comment about the Russians' attitude towards Ukraine. Well, I mean, it is the way they conceive and perceive Ukraine. I think that the way to describe the Russian attitude to Ukraine is imperialism. So a powerful state and another one is less powerful, second rate, and it actually it's kind of a client state. And you can see that Russians, they are derogatory toward both Ukrainian political project and the president who symbolizes this so they are, you know, dismissive about Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian war effort, not because either Ukrainian culture or war effort or the president are, you know, inferior, but because they used to think about it as such. 
So the imperialism is actually the foundation of all those derogatory remarks they are making. And actually it is quite predictable because there are many instances when the Soviet behavior towards Ukraine was imperialistic. And so it's only natural that having started an imperialist war in 2022, Putin and his people, his entourage and uh, the Russian people in general, they're actually very imperialistic about Ukraine. When or if Ukraine wins, being, you know, trashed by an inferior quote-unquote power, it actually will be the reason why they will actually have to make some work on their collective psyche, on their attitude to the outside world. So that is the reason why I am predicting actually some troubles for Russia. You know, after the Second World War, Germans had to tackle the question of German guilt, the question of German imperialism. The same is bound to happen for Russia. Also in Russia-Kazakh relations, Russia-Georgian relations, and as well Russia-West relations. You're listening to Ukraine 242. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network. And I'm speaking with Dr. Ivan Gomza in Kyiv, Ukraine. Dr. Gomza is academic director of the Public Policy and Governance Program at Kyiv School of Economics. He is sharing some of his thoughts about President Zelensky's U.S. visit, both as a Ukrainian and as a political scientist who studies and writes about the war. This interview was recorded on December 23rd. Let's go back to the interview. When Zelensky was speaking to Congress, he said that, quote, Russian tyranny has lost control of us and will never influence our minds again. Is this true? Well, one of the main pillars of post-colonial worldview is that people who used to be a colony liberate themselves from the dogmas and narratives from the empire. So I do agree that Ukraine, we did take into account the Russian point of view since 1991, since the independence. But right now, the Russian influence is frozen. It is on pause right now. So now most Ukrainians, we say to Russians, we don't care about your opinion. Get out. You promise to bomb us, whatever. If you come here, we are going to, you know, kill all your soldiers, all your forces. Uh, they cannot do anything. And all your words, they cannot, you know, hurt us. So. In this respect, I do agree with President Zelensky. For the moment, the importance of Russia has declined for Ukrainian mindset. But on the other hand, I actually want you to think about, let's say, the events of Holodomor. Millions of Ukrainians were starved to death by the Soviet government and the decisions were made in Moscow. And I think that people were thinking something like that, oh, Russians, they are starving us to death, they are making cannibals from us, so we are going to have nothing in common. And then there was the Second World War, when Ukrainians and Russians, they actually fought together against the Nazi invaders. And then out of the Second World War, the entity of the Soviet people emerged. And for almost 30 years, Actually, Ukrainians consider themselves as brothers of Russians. So, I mean, even despite the trial and the trauma of Holodomor, then it actually resurrects that image of brotherly nations, of people. 
So when Zelensky says that the tyranny is gone forever, well, I don't know. I mean, new events might actually recreate that mm. dominance or maybe cooperation between Russians and Ukrainians. In history and in politics, nothing is forever. In 2004, you had the Orange Revolution, where a stolen election was reversed. And then in 2013-14, you had the Euromaidan uprising, which again was a popular uprising, which resulted in the removal of the president and the desire to move towards Europe. How significant is this kind of more recent movement towards, towards Europe and a kind of a popular uprising for democracy? How significant do you really think it is within the context of this longer relationship with Russia? Well, let's clear some air here, because actually there is a kind of a misperception people tend to have. I mean, even people in Ukraine and Russia, they have this misperception. The misperception is Ukraine and Russia, they used to live together for, you know, for eternity. Actually, Ukraine became part of Russia just in the late 18th century. Actually, Ukraine coexisted as a part of Russian policy for 146 years. Prior to Ukraine, actually, it was a huge state in the middle of Europe. It was like Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, something like that. And it used to be the part of that medieval state for much longer, actually for 400 years. And Ukraine actually lived through Renaissance, through Baroque period, through Enlightenment period, and all those cultural events, they are very important for Western civilization, but had little repercussion for Russian Orthodox civilization. We have much more in common with Poland and through Poland with France than with Russia. Actually, if you take Polish words, it is much more easy for Ukrainians who don't know Russian to understand Polish people than to understand Russian. So the point I am making is Ukraine belongs to the West because we have very deep ties running deeper than ties with Russian Orthodox culture and Orthodox state. So we are coming back. And actually, that is something people both in the West and in Ukraine must understand. So how does that go together with what you said earlier, that the Russians and the Ukrainians have had this ongoing relationship? Well, since the mid 18th century. Russia tried to impose the notion of the brotherly people. It cultivated Ukrainian elites and Ukrainian culture into the Russian narrative. So that is precisely why we actually have those very complicated relations between Russians and Ukrainians. If you want a common life example, imagine that Russia and Ukraine is a couple and there is an abuser like let's say Russia is like a male in those relations he abuses his wife he from time to time he beats her but at the same time he convinces her that honey without me you are nothing and I'm here to make your life better in you know in this that kind of relations sometimes the oppressed actually starts to think that well this is something where I can coexist so you are a political scientist, and you are saying that this metaphor really does apply to Ukraine and Russia. Yes, yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm not a professional psychologist, but I do have some knowledge about it as well. 
It is actually very, very fitting here. Russia used military power many decades to have an upper hand, and uh, you can see their latest in this war. A characteristic of a domestic violence situation is that when the victim tries to leave is the most dangerous time. Yes, exactly. That's an incredible metaphor. Zelensky came here last week and said, we have put a lot behind us and we're committed to democracy. Was this a real shift to democracy? If you take the 1991 independence and uh, you see what has changed in Ukraine through those 30 years, it actually is happening in Ukraine. People are actually much more open in their opinions on politics and policies, and that is a sign of democratization. Another instance is actually that uh, democratization is impossible without the so-called generalized trust. In the post-Soviet times, people actually had little trust. So they perceived others as, you know, some competitors. When people see a stranger and they perceive him or her as a threat. Nowadays, the trust is much higher in Ukraine. Why is that? Precisely because when you have a period of trial, when you see that you can go back to the cafe with a generator. You remember the one I mentioned in the first part of our interview. And the owner there, he says, well, just plug in, don't worry. Yes, it will take some diesel of mine, but I really know that you need some electricity. Or when, for instance, you enlist to the army and let's say you are from Ivano-Frankivsk and you you speak only Ukrainian. And a guy from Kharkiv who speaks predominantly Russian, he actually enlisted to the army as well to protect his land. That kind of cooperation between different social domains which used to be separated that kind of cooperation it brings trust and that is happening in ukraine we had had many instances when we had to cooperate and that is the biggest difference with russia especially nowadays people try often you know to to say that all ukrainians always were free-minded people and russians they are not i don't agree actually the point i'm making in that due to the peculiarities of our political transition, Ukraine had instances when we had to cooperate and that breed trust and the trust brings democracy. And Russians, they had another way and they have no opportunities to build that trust, to build coalitions. And for this reason, they have no democracy now. Hardship can do the opposite. Hardship can make people really angry, selfish. People can kind of lose it when they're cold and hungry and in the dark. What you're saying is that uh, the opposite is happening to a large extent. I'm, I'm sure there's problems during this time of war, but you're saying that enough cooperation is happening that people are coping with the hardship in a positive way that builds trust. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's really remarkable. I mean, it it sounds abstract until I remember that you're actually not sure if your electricity is going to go out any minute again and that you actually (laughs) are in the dark in Kyiv. Many of us have, you know, dark perspectives on human nature. But in fact, during most of disasters, most of crises, we actually see that people are much more cooperative and helpful during the period of trials, a better angels of our nature, they prevail. Mm, This is turning into a Christmas message interview. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tell us a little bit about Bakhmut. We mentioned earlier that President Zelensky, when he made his trip to the United States, first traveled to the city of Bakhmut, and in his speech, he gave Congress a flag which had been signed by the soldiers. Bakhmut is a city in the Donbass region of Ukraine, which is currently under heavy attack. Tell us a little bit about this city and its community. Let's start with the name. It took almost 30 years to start to rename all those communist named cities and Bakhmut was one among them. Actually, prior to 2018, Bakhmut was called Artyomovsk. And who is Artyom? Artyom, he was a communist leader who actually helped the Bolsheviks to conquer the central Ukraine. So I'm mentioning this because, you know, Russians, they are still fighting for Artyomovsk whereas the Ukrainians were fighting for Bakhmut. So Bakhmut bears the brand of that very difficult history because, you know, just as its name was changed, the population is a typical Donbass population. People who have mixed identities. They think about themselves as both Ukrainians and Soviets. They try to build a contemporary culture. There is some very beautiful cultural venues in Bakhmut. But on the other hand, they tried to keep those huge Soviet plants which were in the city. And actually, there is a huge salt mine there. Most of the salt in Ukraine was dug out in Artyomovsk. But now they have been destroyed by Russian art artillery, which also was created in Ukraine. Because most of the munitions and artillery Russians are now used, it was produced in the Soviet Ukraine. So if you want to have a symbol of what is currently ongoing between Russia and Ukraine, think about a post-Soviet, predominantly Soviet-built city being destroyed by Soviet Ukraine weaponry. Hmm. Thank you so much for taking so much time to speak with me. What are your thoughts about going forward? Do you, you agree with Zelensky? Do you think that Ukraine can win this? For sure. I mean, people still cannot believe especially in the West, that Ukraine can win. And for me, you know, it's like, it's no-brainer. I mean, smaller countries, they win all the time. Vietnam won against France and then the United States. For example, Japan and Russia in 1905. Japan was a much smaller country with a smaller economy and smaller industry, and it won the war. And then let's take another example. I mean, Algeria, it won against France. So we have those instances all over history. Smaller countries do win wars against colossuses. And uh, the reason why is very often for smaller countries, it is the matter of existence. And for bigger countries, it is the matter of, you know, imperial designs. So yes, we can win. I mean, 100,000 of Russians have been killed in Ukraine. And we're going to do it more and more and more. I know it, it sounds cruel, but it's a reality. And then at one moment, they'll do just the, as they, they did in Afghanistan. They, they will say, we are having enough of that. Let's get out. Russians, unlike Ukrainians, they actually don't have something to fight for sooner or, or later. And for them, it is better to be sooner. They understand that they actually have no stake in that war. It is about the elites right, to impose their notions and ideas and designs. And as a Ukrainian, as a human being, I'm really grateful, genuinely grateful for the American people investing, maybe, maybe even spending that money on Ukraine. It, it, it really helps enormously. And I think that 
it is really remarkable that it is the United States who is doing it. I know that you can invest that amount of money into many other important things in infrastructure, in schools in the United States. Europe it is also helping, but America is the beacon of democracy. It is the city on the hill. And I think American political class want to see it finished the best possible way. Maybe since Ukraine is trying to emulate democracy, it's really fitting that Americans are trying to help and that you are sympathizing to our plight right now. Well, thank you very much and um, wishing you a, a, as happy as a holiday as possible. Thank you very much. And it was a real pleasure of mine, Ursula. Have okay. a happy Christmas. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Ciao. You have been listening to Ukraine 242. Many thanks to Dr. Ivan Gomza, who was speaking with us from Kyiv, Ukraine. Dr. Gomza is academic director of the Public Policy and Governance Program at Kyiv School of Economics. Dr. Gomza teaches at the Kyiv School of Economics and Kyiv Moila Academy and frequently gives public lectures. He is the author of two books and has published numerous articles on the war, Ukrainian nationalism, authoritarian politics, and popular movements. We are grateful also to the Ukrainian electrical workers who made it possible for the electricity to turn on in Kyiv just in time for this interview. I've been your host, Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, standing in temporarily for Anne Levine. If you would like to send a message to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115. Your message will be translated and broadcast to 26 cities across Ukraine. Again, that's 510 510- 883-3115. Until next time, I thank you for listening to Ukraine 242.